If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. My name is Brandon Zeck. I'm Glass Tire's publisher. And today we have part one of a two-part mini-series that we're doing on Art Dirt, where we talk to uh, people who have either recently done or people who really know a lot about public art. So these conversations are centered on um, the things you might not know about public art, just as an art viewing person, or the things you may not know about public art if you yourself are an artist thinking about applying to public art projects. Uh, the two conversations are one with John V. Monthera Falmsby, which we are publishing today. That's the podcast you're listening to right now. And then a conversation with Tommy Gregory, uh, who used to be the Houston Airport Systems uh, public art manager. He now works for Seattle. Uh, you'll hear that in a couple weeks. But right now, uh, let's cut to the interview that I did with John V. Uh, she recently completed a large-scale public art project at Houston's Bush Intercontinental Airport. So we talk a little bit about that. That was kind of one of our first really large-scale projects, or large at least. Uh, you'll hear how big it is in our interview. But we just talk about, you know, lessons learned, what the project was like, and what it's like to be an artist diving into one of these projects. Enjoy. Uh, would you introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is John B. Mimthura Falmsby, and I am a marine conservation artist. I'm here based in Houston. I am a South Asian Indian woman, and I love to do what I do and make massive works of public art and giant oil paintings to these amazing lenticular works and glass works, along with apparently custom carpet design. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's just that's just part one element of this. So just to kind of ground this conversation for any of our listeners who maybe haven't seen photos of the install or Will you tell us a little bit about what the project that you just completed at the Houston airport is? Um, just to just to prompt you, I mean, it's a 240-foot tunnel that connects two different terminals. So it's we're not talking about fabricating a sculpture and placing it or, like, having some paintings bought. This was, like, a full-scale, huge square footage project. Right. It's a, it's a pretty massive installation. Um, so it is the Aquarius Art Tunnel, which is based off the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary. It is based off the um, waters and the reef systems right off of the Galveston waters, uh, about 100 square miles off of the coast. 
Um, you are looking at like 240 foot long tunnel immersive art experience. Mm-hmm. It is the carpet, the walls, there's ceiling art, which has about a total of 15 lenticular works, along with custom lighting installation and design. I also have an augmented reality Instagram filter, which is based off a Mardi Gras. It was a fish that was discovered in the U.S. National Marine Sanctuary. Again, this is one of 15 U.S. National Marine Sanctuaries. My work, again, is all about creating awareness about our oceans and what we have. Um, the concept of the Aquarius Art Tunnel came to me. I was looking at constellations in our night sky, and I thought about the water bearer, and I broke the word Aquarius into three words, and aqua just resonated for the word water. With re, I kept hearing the Hindi word hamari, which means ours, and then with us, I kept hearing us. So the entire installation stands for the symbolism of water is ours for all of us, and it goes to this concept of one ocean, which is where the idea of like how um, our bayou would affect the Galveston waters, which affects the flower gardens, which affects the Caribbean, and further on, like to different oceans and like, you know, all the way up to like even the Indian Ocean. So um, my work is all about putting people in places which are just immersive and allowing them to experience the beauty of these waters and educate them because nobody knows that we have this right off the Texas coast. And it's a reminder that we're all interconnected to uh, affect these waters as well. Um, There's also like text-based art as well, Mm -hmm. uh, a reminder of how we're connected to water. So I hired a linguist here in Houston um, from Rice University, actually, and uh, he helped me come up with 50 languages that we selected together that we thought were specific to Houston's uh, diversity and used a lot within our culture of Houston's international base. And we have that as well (laughs) through one of the thresholds. The entire tunnel was, you know, endorsed through the United Nations decades of ocean science um, for its educational purposes and understanding towards art as a site, which was amazing. And that organization has been uh, endorsed and created through UNESCO. They've never done that for an art like installation before. Um, So that for me was a really home run with my marine conservational efforts. There's a sound component to the installation oh, yeah, too, so right? There is. And Andrew Carnivus, who's an artist here, like I um, had reached out through him with a friend, Lynn Birdwell, who helped me through the entire production of this tunnel. I'm super grateful to her. She's also the producer of the documentary that we've been creating for this entire project. So Andrew helped me with the sound engineering for this project with uh, creating like a 30-minute sound loop for how you would feel going through this space. And um, it basically is almost ethereal and beautiful and reminds you of like that moment of like what a beautiful magical reef would be. And it has my bubbles from my dive from the actual dive that I did on the sound, the flower gardens. Mm -hmm 
along with some sound recording by Marissa Natal, who is from the Marine Sanctuary and works out of uh, Galveston. I do sit on the Sanctuary Advisory Council, so I get to work with Marissa as well. Uh, she's pretty amazing. I'm very honored to have had the opportunity to work with a lot of the members from the Sanctuary uh, through NOAA and GP Schmall is one of them. Uh, he actually came to the studio when I was painting the original artwork for the walls for the mural that we created. And uh, I just needed to make sure I was being scientifically accurate, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like the big nerd in me. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I did was I created the artwork where the mesophotic deep zones are on the ends of the tunnel and mm -hmm. you start going to the shallower waters in the center. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure I was putting the right species accurately where they are. And uh, it was like probably the strangest request <laughs> they've had, like him. And I asked um, Jake Emmert, who's another friend and sits on the Sanctuary Advisory Council. He's also the Dive and Safety Operational Officer at Moody Gardens um, to come out and look at the work. And uh, I was talking to Emma Hickerson, who was the last uh, research coordinator, because mm -hmm. uh, she was the, the start of my project the entire time. <laughs> And Emma Hickerson would start, like, telling me about the names of the species and educating me on everything. And she's like, oh, you don't have enough humming in your painting. And I'm like, what is that? What is humming? And she's like, Jami, where are all the fish? There's no fish on your reef. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I went back in. I kid you not. And I painted, like, we painted, like, over a thousand fish, like, in those. Like, and when I say thousand fish, I mean, like, with the smallest brush you could see. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that you're getting at through this process is how, I mean, how collaborative a oh, big public yeah. artwork is yeah. like this. And also just how much research, how much research and how much work you want to do, because I mean, I mean, no artist wants to fuck up in their practice. Oh, no, right? no. But at the same time, like if you make a painting in a gallery and it's not all that accurate you and the painting doesn't sell, you can just kind of take it back to your studio and destroy it versus something like <laughs> this, which is like, I mean, these what, like 40 foot long original paintings that you made. Yeah. So like the original paintings are nine inches by 240 inches. What is that in feet? I guess 240 divided inches by divided by 12. By 12 I don't know. What is the math? 20, I guess not 40 feet long. <laughs> what is that? Uh, 24 feet long yeah 24 i guess i'm like my phone is off 20 like, yeah 20. okay 20 i'm like damn i can't do math right now um 20 feet uh yeah so yeah which you know i just sold some of the originals they just went in a shipment to canada which is amazing so that was exciting um it's been it's been a journey like you know the like this whole process it's been exciting I also modified the artwork when we started creating them in the studio. So, like, you know, to figure out this whole process was – it was not an easy process as every artist has to create their own journey. Um, one of the things was, like, it, the whole project had to be modular because it's a giant space. It's an airport. You know, if they need to come and cut out a hole in the wall, like, how are they going to do it? So, I mean, like, I had originally applied as an RFQ. Like, every artist was sent out this process. Like, it was an open call, as we know. Um, 
there was an RFA and an RFQ at the time. I did not apply to the RFA at all. And as an RFQ, I think I went on a total risk limb. <laughs> I didn't apply for any other spaces. I just applied for this tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I had visualized always wanting to create a tunnel art experience with my work because, you know, I'd been to so many aquarium tunnels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just knowing the space and knowing the flower gardens, and it was just, it just meant something. And I, I felt like it was like almost like destiny. And I was like, I have to do this. I'm going to apply. If it doesn't happen, it's not my, it's not meant to be. Um, and then after, I, after getting selected through the RFQ, it was really hard because I was not allowed to tell anyone I had gotten selected as a finalist. And a lot of people had gotten it or not gotten selected as finalists at the time and it was really difficult because there were friends and people who were like angry I get it and it was a very tough time everything's a competition I mean I think everybody and they don't talk about that stuff yeah everybody's like edging for one of these public art projects I get it I think in part like of course it elevates your practice and the ability to be able to like have a piece in a public art collection really means something and also not that it's ever easy to do this but I feel like once you're in one it therefore it's like you it's leverage proof of it concept. Yeah. yeah you can leverage it and be like yeah oh look I did this thing here so I can do this thing for well, this other airport and that's the other thing like I had done rail to the sea which was a massive project at the time which I got to leverage with another project which was at the port of San Diego and this is the other thing I had another artist once talk, recently talked to me and I said sometimes you learn from the projects that fail mm-hmm. like my port of San Diego project no one knows this but it totally failed mm-hmm. and it w- had nothing to do with me but and it, it had nothing to do with it just had to do with circumstances unfortunately like the port just they were ready the client approaching the port just kept changing their mind Mm -hmm. and the port like offered me a full-time job position Mm -hmm. and I'm like I'm not an art administrator (laughs) or an art administration and they're like well we really like you will you move to San Diego and work for us and I was like I can't do that Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and you're not an art administrator but at the same time I think one of the things that people don't realize for these projects is you need that brain you turn into that you do essentially you actually need that brain yeah you as John V aren't going to go install a two four two 240-foot mural vinyls by yourself. No. Like you're going to hire a company to do that. It's delegation. Or even the carpeting or the lighting or fabrication of the work. And, I mean, there were separate teams. There were studio teams. There were teams off-site. There were teams out of state. Mm -hmm. There were production teams. I mean, there were teams internationally. Like the AR team was in India. it was fascinating how many teams were creating all of these things. Like, you know, um, the, like the research that went into the work was me. Um, and I got bids from like four different people for each thing. Like it was not an easy thing. And there were, well, and that's then, something you have to do, you have right? to do because like, it's a contract because this is the Houston airport system, which is a it's contract not, with the city. It's not right? necessarily something you have to do, but okay. it's, it's something you should do. Yeah. I, I do it. 
I mean, I'm also a bar- someone who bargains. Like we, like I think I've talked to you about my bargaining mm-hmm. tactics. I learned how to bargain in India with my mom and my grandmom, just by going to the market to buy vegetables. <laughs> like you know, it's. I guess that's uh, you never knew like how those little things come into handy, like you know, yeah. or come into use later on in your life. It's everything. I think um, life's lessons are just from the simple journeys like that lead you here every day um i i also will say like my family background has helped me because i was just an observer like they have they massive they manage like massive projects and like project management right so just having a little of that is helpful the other thing that I, I mean, I hired a lawyer. Having a lawyer was really helpful. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, they don't tell you this as an artist. Having contracts with all your vendors is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, you never know when you would need that. Uh, the other thing I think is like being on schedule is important. And as much as you can maintain your schedule is extremely important. And you should always plan for delays because unfortunately things happen mm-hmm. and be ready to pivot uh so you know i had to create an entire concept but also get things fire tested because it was brand new material like had, literally get things oh, fire tested as in will this catch on fire is this flame retardant oh yeah, because like, it's in a public place right so because it was 240 feet long the mural substrate that we were using had never been fire tested before. Mm-hmm. And I found that surprising because even the vendor that I was working with had done massive public art projects with cities like Philadelphia, even other cities, like even in Houston, they had done cities like LA. And I was like, what's going on? Like mm-hmm. other projects that were bigger. And there, he was kind of angry at me because he's like, I've never had anyone question things to get fire tested. You're all the specs. Like, you know, and I'm like, well, the fire marshal at the Houston airport wants this test yeah. or this information. So I need this information. And he's like, well, I would either split it with you or you need to do this test. He wasn't willing to split it. I went ahead and did the test. It was just like, you know what? It's not crazy expensive. We just don't want to get delayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the test was like, I, I thought there are two versions of this test, by the way. <laughs> There's one that is stupid expensive where you have to recreate the entire room situation. Oh There's gosh. no way I'm creating the whole room, uh-huh. right? So, like, there's ways to go about it. So we, I had to negotiate on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So we figured out we could actually do the test of the material. Mm-hmm. That was acceptable to the fire marshal. I went ahead. I found the lab. Believe it or not, they're actually in Texas. Mm-hmm. I had to ship it to them. Got the test. It was like $1,050 at the time. Mm-hmm. Got the test done. <laughs> Gave that information. Well, see, I, I think one of the other like, reasons that... This is problem solving, you know? Like, you yeah. have to be a problem solver. So... Yeah, sorry. I think artists also tend to look at public art as, like, I mean, a way to make money, which isn't necessarily wrong, but 
when you're an artist and you're looking at a $300,000 budget, you're thinking about all of the things that that money can do. Right. But at the same time, depending on the project that you're doing, it money doesn't really go that far when what you're doing is essentially running a small business, right? And this projects can, in some way, it can kind of be death by like a thousand cuts. Like you had to get that material fire tested, which was a thousand dollars, which isn't crazy. But at the same time, that was like about one three hundredth of your budget, right? Right, but you have a contingency budget. So I had a contingency budget. So you you have to budget well. There were things I had in my design that I I literally canceled in my initial design because they were going to cost a lot of money for no reason. And I switched to an alternative because of my budgeting and I had to make money in some way. Yeah. Like, well, that's carving out an artist yeah, fee for yourself. You need an artist is, fee. Yeah, right. I feel like that's something that also, if you're doing your first larger public art project, right. it's your budgeting and it's like it maybe not realizing what you actually need to pay yourself to do this and, job because well, you're an employee of this project. And that's the other thing. I learned like the days of not making money are gone. <laughs> I hate to say that. So uh, like you've budgeted your budget in a way where you make an artist fee you finalize what your artist fee is. You never touch your artist fee. Mm-hmm. You have your contingency budget. That's your cushion. Mm-hmm. You don't get to that cushion until you need to get to that cushion. There's another c- contingency budget, which I don't like to touch. I call it, like, my excess marketing budget. You know, like, it just you just find different ways to cushion things, you know. Mm-hmm. You think about your electrical be very smart about electrical, especially in old spaces, because you never know when you have to put another circuit in. People don't think about that. I remember somebody saying, check the utilities. I met an officer who said, check the utilities. That's stuck in my head. Artists don't think about this. Like, it's a whole different ballgame. Don't waste your time to go get the permits. You will actually spend more money, hire a permit runner, those kinds of things. Like, also, if you think you're going to, like, save money by doing the mundane job, you're not – I don't want to use the word silly or stupid, but <laughs> you're actually not, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, well, delegation is key because guess what? You're making more money by making art in your studio. Um, yeah, you're the project manager. You're the creative force behind it. It's real- like – Yes. Look, you, Steve Jobs wasn't, like <laughs> – you delegate. You yeah. ha- you have like supervisors. You have project managers, and I don't know. You make sure the project manager and team you have with you is not swindling you. Like, be smart about that as well. Um, it's it's interesting. Like, having the right team is very important. Having the right assistants are important. Having a studio team is that's separate, and not the studio team working on site should be separate i've learned that it it matters because well not everyone has the same skill set no they don't it's a a production team is very different from a studio team because they get exhausted it's a it's very different working physically on site um and i don't think people are realize how physically grueling it is uh especially with hours that are like flipped 
Well, yeah, that's the other thing. If you're doing something in a public space where you need to be there installing, oftentimes you're not going to be able to install when the public is there. So in an airport. Airports, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> not in an airport for sure. Or ports or, you know, um, specific spaces that are like the hours change. It's a different ball game. It's better to have an art installer come in, work three days, than have, a, like, you know, assistants who don't know what they're doing and you're training them as you go, work for you longer hours, and you're on site for two weeks. Think about this because you're going to spend the same, maybe a little more money even. And you're physically going to tire yourself out, not be efficient on your project, and actually not deliver in time. And that's that's where things go wrong. Yeah. I feel like you talking about, you know, not doing the, the smaller jobs uh, as an artist. Like, I think, I think oftentimes, I mean... Like, hire a paint contractor to paint, like, just blocking out colors or, you know, doing, like, simple things. Like, if you – I had to just, like, put base paint down. I just had – I hired a contractor to come in, my my usual contractor who does just base paint. And then I came in and I did the blending myself. I didn't even let an assistant come for that. And then I did – the pigment treatment, everything was all done in studio on the panels. Whatever fine tuning needed to happen, like that's it. You, I created this entire project in such a way where all the fine tuning stuff happened off site, and it was amazing. And then I hired a professional company for the carpeting. The you know it's just it was just easy. I think there's you know among yeah. artists that haven't had as much experience doing public art there's a reticence to spend major money Mm -hmm. on specific things or I I think it's the whole I mean if you're an artist and running your studio you know that is being a small business in and of itself but it's different when you're looking at a five hundred thousand dollar budget in front of you and learning how to allocate that right it's it's a much different form of running a small business and being able or being able or willing to kind of make those they're not really sacrifices but let's call them sacrifices of these big chunks of money that free up your life or make your life easier i i think there's a really strategic way to parse that out so that it doesn't stress you out it makes your life easier and it also gets the job done the best that it could possibly be it's it's really like i mean i honestly feel like you know you i think this is the thing. They don't teach you business 101 in art school. Mm-hmm. They don't. They really don't. Um, I started learning all these things from the lawyer husband. I won't lie. Mm-hmm. I love him. I will, I'm super grateful to him for his business advice. And um, I'm grateful to my father as well, my engineering dad and my mom, and the interior designing mom. And my family like has been an amazing tool like for education and every project that I have been doing like all the little small things has you learn from all the mistakes or all the small stuff you know Um, I keep a vendor log of every person I liked and every person I didn't like Um, I I learn how to hire an assistant how to monetize their skill sets I 
you know, I don't tell people. I'm testing them from day one of when they walk in the door and what they're doing and how they do it and what how, you just start. Like, mm-hmm. um, I've had people working with me for seven years now, like, who I love, and I know exactly what they're capable of, and they've been training with me for a long time, and I had to take some of them in on site eventually to clean up a few things for fine-tuning. Um <sighs> those kinds of things like which honestly like the reason why our project even just took 40 days and 40 nights on site was like just because the wall was so uneven eventually because of so much movement well there's also a ramp throughout the space right uh, well that that's it that was another thing we could because that ramp is ada mm-hmm. uh, compliant there's like a railing on the side we couldn't take that railing off so it had to be unscrewed every time the wallpaper had to be put, like I'm calling wallpaper, the mural artwork had to be placed behind it and re- put in every time, and then it had to be screwed back. That's what took a lot of time. Like, it was not an easy project and not, like, an easy site, but, um, and we had to, like, be really mindful about people coming in and out, and it was just, like, our site hours, if you think about it, just with setup. And take down was only like five hours a day. It's not a lot of time on site. Um, I I worked with the electrician for like two days to just put up all the lenticulars, which was great. And then the side lighting took another two days, which was nothing. the The carpet went down in like three nights. It was nuts. I didn't. That was like amazing, right? Like <laughs> that's a lot of carpet if you think about it. It was like a team of like 25 guys showed up and they just worked and they came in one night and they're like is there anything we can eat and I'm like no but you can have all our food and I was like please get some food tomorrow on you know like you prepare yourself to feed people even on site um treating people well just goes a long way in oh and of that's itself. An, that's another thing I I do have it in my contract you need to be kind to everyone like I I have fired people off-site like if you're not nice get off like the job I do not accept people being unkind. It is something because nobody needs that on a job. So don't stand for it. Like it's not something that needs to happen, especially if a man is being rude to a woman. I won't take it. It's happened before. It's not acceptable. I will not accept it. It's happened to a couple of the other assistants. And I'm not okay with that. I won't stand for that as a boss. So, yeah, they don't teach you this stuff. Yeah. Was was there anything, you know, coming out of this project, was there anything, kind of any major takeaways that you really wish before you knew you went in? Maybe just kind of not specific, like material things, or but just any larger lessons that you walked away with? Um. No, not not in retrospective. I think like this project went as smoothly as it could have gone, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I am really grateful that I had everything ready and lined up. We planned as well as we could have. Um, I think I think everything worked out budget wise. I hit as well as I could have numbers and stuff. It was um, pretty decent. There were a few, there were a few small minor kinks, 
um, with like initial permitting and stuff, which got taken care of. There were a few delays. You know, we we went through COVID. There were shortages. I kept having to buy things and hold on to them. And then there were price increases, which sucked. My budget didn't change. That that was the hard part of this. And I, I know, I'm sure other artists felt that too. Um, so like, that's something to keep in mind for the future for any artist, I think. I mean, we're all going through that right now. Uh, I'm I'm even going through shortages right now with just materials like for other projects. Um, it, that's the hardest thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. I think um, to experience when you're mid through a pro- midway in a project and you're like, oh, I need more. Like our anti graffiti coating, for example, just tripled in price, mm-hmm. and we needed more eventually, and it just it was nonsense and at one point our project was going to just get delayed and there was nothing I could do about it and unfortunately it was it was like oh what do we do the panels need to arrive or this entire these that I had like all the stuff ready to go with the kits and the materials but there was a shelf life (laughs) and I was like I'm gonna lose something like $7,000 worth of materials. So that was a little stressful, and it literally arrived in the nick of time. Uh, and, you know, you think about chemicals expiring, and I'm like, is this a real thing? But it's a thing. Yeah. So um, thank God that didn't happen. Uh, but it was like, it was it was a little, it was a little rough for, you know, it was a, a little rough in the studio for a couple of weeks because we were like, oh, gosh, you know, we were all freaking out, like, the whole team was freaking out about that stuff. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I sent everyone home one evening. I was like, you guys, none of us can work right now. Yeah. We're all stressed. This is stupid. Go home. <laughs> and it was literally because there were, like, all those truck shortages, remember, during the summer. <laughs> and we, we were at the mercy of limbo of FedEx and, like, shipments. And even though we had tracking numbers, there were just no way to track, like, trace things things that were taking like that would normally take a week were taking three weeks to come in even though we had like paid for express shipping and stuff like that it didn't matter so that was that was that was (laughs) ridiculous um and then my pigment company from japan like that i work with um the person who was working there ended up like falling really sick with COVID and they were the main lab people like who were you know in charge of like some of the pigments that were coming in special custom pigments for our um the mural treatment and um that that shipment got delayed by like four months (laughs) which was nuts and I was like oh I was I was so on edge for that stuff so you know, you can't predict everything, but I had placed orders as early as I could, even though I hadn't been paid for the project yet, like, just to make sure I had materials. That was that was very stressful. Mamie, as a final question, uh, if someone approached you tomorrow who hadn't ever done any public art and asked you for a minute's worth of advice on how they could start, how they could break into it, what they could do, what they should do, shouldn't do, what would you tell them? So 
I actually get asked a lot for advice. I'm not going to lie. And a lot of the times I get asked about my technique a lot, which I get. People want to know how you do your things. And, you know, I, I don't mind sharing, but at the same time, the one thing I keep thinking about is what this one artist said to me once because it has helped me a lot he wouldn't tell me his answers and I don't blame him because that's it it was his art practice and I was like I couldn't figure it out I was like well you know what it's his art practice and I'm like this is my art practice it took me years to get here right and I've been thinking a lot about this I'm like what creates innovation right so for example I recently lost um, the f- access to the frame shop that I work with for my lenticulars, just just to get them in the frames that I like and do like put them together. I have I have this amazing frame built for them and everything, and I had to reinvent myself to just figure out another pro- like way. It's problem solving. I just I do think problem solving is really important in public art in general. Okay, so like you can get a project. How do you get successful at the project if you can't follow through, right? Follow through is important. Um, as an artist, I say if you think about it, be true to your own art practice. Like I studied materials and techniques. What creates innovation? Thinking out of the box, right? I had to reinvent myself and figure out how to now all of a sudden I bought all these framing te- materials in the studio and everyone looked at me and thought I was nuts. Like my assistants were like, now you're going to start framing. I'm like, yeah, we're going to start framing. <laughs> and and um, I just figured out how to put that damn frame together and like it's all archival. It made me so happy. I was like, I know everything that's going into this is badass. It's amazing. And the back of it, I looked at it, I'm like, it's so boring. It's just got, like, that normal paper, which I'm like, you always look at a frame from a frame shop, and they put the backing paper, and you're like, oh, it's going to get pierced through so easily, right? Because they leave that air gap. And I'm like, I figured out how to not leave an air gap so it won't get pierced through. But forget that. I ended up putting, like, my art again on the back of it in such a way that it's a custom work of art on the back as well. And it looks so badass. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, huh, now that's bespoke framing, right? And and I'm just thinking, like, that's innovation. That's invention. Like, so, you know, like, Coda Works this year gave me their Creative Revolutionary Award, like, for 2023. And I'm thinking about this. Like, I was like, wow. Like, I'm in the same category as, like, Nick Cave, like, one of the professors from SAIC was a professor at art school that I went to like and like he was like one of our guest professors for a class that I took when I was there and I'm like this is badass like I feel like what am I doing like this makes no sense but I'm here um and it goes back to like when I got railed to the sea I was like I don't know how to make a freaking mural this big with almost no money because the funding was stupid and I had to figure out how to, I figured out how to get a free lift, Brandon. I didn't know how to drive a lift. The dri- <laughs> the lift got stuck in a ditch at the time. I even got someone to paint and prime that wall for free. <laughs> Don't ask. It was nuts. I managed to get 
the right kind of paint. I thought about what paint. I, I kept thinking about failure. I, you think about which I went, I kept thinking about this one painting I saw at the Art Institute of Chicago, which is completely filled with cracks in it. And I kept thinking about oil painting techniques, which is what I studied, right? And I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to approach this like any oil painting. You think about the base, you think about the paint, you think about what the final varnish technique needs to be. And that's how I approached my mural technique at the time. The painting still looks good. It's still up and there. It's just grimy because it's next to a freaking railway track that's complete and completely around construction sites everywhere. It needs to be power washed. Um, but that mural has like lasted. And it started like kind of a trend where people started thinking more about making murals archival. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay keep going start there like and I I say to every artist think about your work and how you make it in your studio if you want to be a public artist think about what you want and why you want to do it and use your technique on that realm think outside the box and don't think about other people think about yourself I think that's what's more important and innovation is more important and you have a computer and the internet, and Google, and libraries, and other things. Like, I am constantly figuring out new techniques, and no one is teaching those to me. Mm -hmm. You know I just got an etching, like, press. Mm -hmm. Somebody gave it to me from the 1950s. I'm super excited to use this thing. Like, I studied lithography and, like, um, mesotinting and, like, um, aquatint processes in school and I'm just like okay now I'm going to use this somehow in my new work I don't know how yet but I want to bring that into like some of my giant oil paintings too so that's how you create innovation I guess you think outside the box like <laughs> you co-opt other yeah. uh, other companies' sayings, yeah. but they're true. Oh, oh, I did, right? <laughs> I did. I totally did. <laughs> totally, unintentionally, um, but yeah, I just like I feel like um, it's it comes from like experimentation. It comes from failure, but I feel like failure is a bad word. Actually, um, it comes from like I think failure is only perceived as. Bad, a bad word. Like yeah. something can fail, and that's actually that's fine. actually good. It's yeah. fine because you know you learn from your mistakes. Like you learn from you when you give up. That's the worst, I yeah. think. As an artist, like I have been told so much nonsense. People have threatened me. I don't give a crap. I'm just gonna keep going. If like I've learned, the day I stop painting is the day I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. No one can take away my talent. Just keep doing what you do. That's what everyone should do like focus on you and make your art and then work on yourself definitely that is my advice to every artist like apply keep going don't feel disheartened you will get one project out of like a hundred applications maybe maybe not but just keep going like don't give up I think those are good words to go by. Yeah. It sucks because it's a lot of work. (laughs) But that's what art is, and that's why we love it. (laughs) It is. It is definitely a lot of work. I think it's, 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 it's amazing, though. It's worth it.
John V. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. And uh, if you're ever in Houston's Bush Intercontinental Airport and need to go between terminals D and E, yeah. uh, you'll be walking through an Aquarius art tunnel. It's also pre-security. So you don't have to fly. Right. So you can go see it. You can actually go see it. You can park and go see it. I recommend it. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Bye. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in two weeks from now for the next Art Dirt podcast for part two of this in which we'll talk to Tommy Gregory. Thanks so much. And until then, go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.